You're listening to To another episode of Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yu, and I'm Rira Yu, and we're here today to talk about our February 2020 book club pick, The Kiss Quotient by Helen Hong. Um, and to help us discuss this book, we have a special guest. Rira, why don't you introduce her? Okay, so we have my friend Caitlin Kelly on the podcast. Uh, she is also a co-host of mine. Uh, we do a podcast <laughs> called Bestest Movie Ever, where a bunch of film school students uh, talk about classic films that they should have watched in film school but totally didn't, and uh, we talk about them. So. Uh, Thank you, Caitlin, for joining us. Of course, uh, Caitlin was actually the one who introduced me to the Kiss Quotient. Uh, she read it first and was like, "I think you would like this book." <laughs> so, um, coming full circle here, exactly. and it's also a very special book to uh, Caitlin because um, she found out that she was autistic after yes. reading it. So, um, we're going to talk more about that during our conversation. Yeah, um, so let's just get started. All right, I'm going to start with the book jacket description for those of you who do not care about spoilers. <laughs> oh yeah, standard spoiler warning. We're going to be talking all about this book, so if you care about that stuff, go read the book right now. We'll wait, put us on pause, and when you come back, we'll be ready to talk all about the kiss quotient. Okay. Stella Lane comes up with algorithms to predict customer purchases, a job that has given her more money than she knows what to do with, and way less experience in the dating department than the average thirty-year-old. It doesn't help that Stella has Aspergers, or that French kissing reminds her of a shark getting its teeth cleaned by a pilotfish. Her conclusion: she needs lots of practice with a professional, which is why she hires escort Michael Fan. With the looks of a K drama star and the martial arts moves to match, the Vietnamese Swedish stunner can't afford to turn down Stella's offer. And when she comes up with a lesson plan, he proves willing to help her check off all the boxes, from foreplay to more than missionary position. Before long, Stella not only learns to appreciate his kisses, but to crave all of the other things he's making her feel. Their no-nonsense partnership starts making a strange kind of sense. And the pattern that emerges will convince Stella that love is the best kind of logic. Yeah. So, um, where should we start with this? We were... uh, so we're going to start with uh, first impressions, and I am going to start with you, Marvin, considering <laughs> that uh, I made you read this. And um, actually, this was my second time reading this book, and I thoroughly enjoyed it because partly I knew that you were reading you were all the sexy. You were imagining I was reading at the same time. Um, I think, like I mentioned last episode, I listened to this book um, a good, I think, seventy percent of it on audiobook. Oh god! So it was oh, extra comfortable. Uh, while did, I was any, driving. did anybody sit in your car while? No, okay. no, no. I'm. I, we live in LA, where there's tons of time spent in traffic alone, which is great. The only time I kind of turned it down was when I had to order stuff through drive-through. And I was like, just, no, the Starbucks person doesn't need to know I'm listening to this. Or maybe they do. Maybe they do. Maybe it's their kink. <laughs> um, no kink shaping on this podcast. I mean, so uh, so listeners of 
Lux and Boba know that I am not the most versed in the romance genre, but I do have, know some things about it through osmosis and through, um, I mean, some of our books have had like one or two like love scenes um, in them. Um, so I had some idea of what it would be. I kind of imagined it would be kind of like your like rom-com, which is kind of is. Um, I did not expect 80% of it to be horny. Oh man. <laughs> yes. That's that's really funny because um cuz I would expect it to be horny considering Michael's profession as an escort. I guess, but it was like it was a lot there. It was a lot of horny in there. Um there was a lot of just I, I now I think when I watch rom-coms in my head I will think Throughout this entire scene, there's no sex, but this person is probably be really horny for that person right now. Right. Because you can see every thought in their head. Well, I also feel like it would be reasonable to have your expectation based on the back description be more like pretty woman, which like... <laughs> it is pretty woman. That it was is, how Rira sold it to yeah, me. Yeah, it is. No, it absolutely is. But then like, obviously, when you're watching a movie, they're doing a lot of like tasteful fades or like, you know, like the piano scene where it's like, you know, they start making out and you're like, oh, you know, they're going to bang. But it's also like the tasteful fade to black. <laughs> um, this has absolutely no tasteful fades to black no. whatsoever. It's very It's actually very tame compared to yes. other romance novels that are out there. Um, and still less cringy, too. That's true. Yeah. I think I knew what I was in for the moment I saw the word um, cock in it. And I was like, oh. Yeah. Okay. You're like, oh, we're in it now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, what about you, Caitlin? Uh, well, what, like, I know that you are more geared towards sci-fi and murder, just like me. Yes. So. <laughs> So uh, what compelled you to pick up The Kiss Quotient, which is the complete opposite of those genres? And how did you feel about it when you read it for the first time? Um, so, yeah, I'm I'm really not a romance person in general. I have um, tried to widen out my taste just a little bit um, because I used to have this very, like, I don't like romance. And I would watch, like, rom-coms here and there because they were, like, kind of easy to consume. Um, but basically right before I read this book, um, a friend of mine, um, Ashley Quatch suggested reading The Hating Game because I was like going to Hawaii and I was like, oh, I need like a pool read. And she's like, read this one. Um, and she is like super, super into romance. Um, and so after I finished that one, she recommended this one as well. And I was like, yeah, why not? Like this was fun to read. Um, and The Hating Game was like a really good, just like more of a straight rom-com. And then so when I read this, I was kind of expecting something like a lot more in that vein, um, where it's not really getting into like super serious sort of like character traits or like conflicts. Um, and so reading this, I was like, man, this is like less of a rom-com and more of like, it is a lot more of a character study than I guess I had kind of <laughs> anticipated. And so I finished it and then I like, basically like we can get to sort of like the big life-changing moment that happened like as I was reading slash after I read this book. Um, and then I essentially went back and I read it like all over again. Um, and so like, I've, I've never done that with like kind of anything related to romance <laughs> whatsoever. Um, and I was also kind of surprised because like, I think a big barrier for me in like written like romances is that like a lot of times the sex scenes are like aggressively unattractive to read like a lot of like comparison of genitals to like flowers and stuff and like this is like a little uh. much um whereas this like even if it was still kind of like like you said aggressively horny i didn't find it like off-putting so i think that like helped me kind of like 
<laughs> get through that into sort of the meatier stuff that it explores. Yeah. And I wouldn't say it's aggressively horny. I just I would just say it's very horny. I never thought it was like <laughs> pushing its horniness on me. It was just yeah. there's a lot of horny going on. And um, I'm trying to see how many times I can get the word horny into this episode. Yes. Horn, horn, uh, horny. <laughs> horn, horn, horny. And, and it, it, was, it was kind of fun. It was really fun to um, just explore these two people trying to figure themselves out. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I definitely prefer romance stories where it is a lot about character growth. It is about uh, people right. who are trying to, like, figure out who they are and, and finding out, like, um, f- like figuring out their insecurities because there is a lot of insecurity in this book from right. both sides. Um, I read a lot of filthy fan fiction in my life, <laughs> so the sex scenes were very, very tame to me. Right. Although when I read it the second time, I was like, "Oh, there are a lot of sex scenes." I did not like. There's like entire most of it. chapters dedicated to. There yes. was a chapter that yeah, was exactly. dedicated to it. I, I counted; it was twenty pages. <laughs> um, yeah, the second time through, I was just kind of skipping through the sex scenes. Um, right. I think that is a criticism that a lot of people had on Goodreads that there were uh, too many sex scenes that they should have, like, cut down on the smut. And I do agree in a sense because after, like, the first time, I'm like (laughs) – like first time when they, like, fully do it. I'm like, I'm good. Like, we don't need to, like – keep going here yeah but i imagine there's some people who read it just for those scenes oh yeah right? i mean yeah, that's, no, that's for the sure. audience and um <laughs> you know like i picked this because february valentine's day um it, it this is our first adult romance novel and the thing about like the romance novel industry it's very white and we've talked about this on the podcast actually our last episode about rwa and how problematic it has been in <laughs> yeah. in the past so um yeah like of all the romance novels i've kind of heard and seen like in my inner circles <laughs> like this is the first time i've seen like a uh, an asian character as like the lead and it's an asian male character yeah who, exactly like who you know it's not really the lead in anything i mean now with crazy rich asians it's kind of like expected <laughs> yeah or you're, like, widening out and at least having it in things like A Simple Favor with, like, Henry Golding being the, like, love interest. Like, there is at least a little bit of, like, yeah. maybe that being included. Um, absolutely not enough. But, yeah, I think that was also something that drew me to this book. It's just, like, it was different. <laughs> I mean, the caveat, though, is also the author already fancasted her uh, main character with Daniel Henney. <laughs> Being mentioned several okay, times. So, yeah. Okay, the thing is, like, Daniel Henney, uh, I mean, he's still fine, but... He like he's up there in age. I feel like <laughs> she should have picked someone who was uh, a little bit more current in well, popularity. <laughs> who would, who's the new Daniel Henney then? Would um, it be Would it be Ross Butler or oh, man? I don't know. Because Henry Golding's still a little too old for this. Yeah, a little too, bit right? too yeah. old. Yeah, yeah Ross funny, Butler maybe. <laughs> for me, um, I the second time I read it, um, I uh, had recently worked at the Saturn Awards, and I oh god, I'm gonna maybe forget i'm horrible with names uh lewis tan i oh yeah lewis tan um i met him and he was gorgeous in person super 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 nice and so that's just kind of like who automatically got put in especially because he was there for like martial arts stuff it's true so i was like okay that's that's my guy would he be too buff for this no there's no okay (laughs) okay he's not like the rock (laughs) i mean like michael is super buff 
And yeah. yeah, like you can't be too buff for for this role, Un- unless like the suit doesn't fit you. Then we have right. a problem with wardrobe. <laughs> he was wearing a suit. It was like silver heathered. It was very great. I was really <laughs> into it. Um, so let's get into the characters because it is a very character driven uh, novel. I want to start with Stella because she is the heroine of the book and. Um, one of the things that are that is really great about this book is representation. Uh, we see a woman with autism uh, be the romantic lead, and also she's rich. Yeah. Like, <laughs> when do you ever see that? Like, exactly. I mean, I, I mean, like you've seen rich people in power uh, go on rom coms, but it's usually like a guy, yeah, and it's usually the woman who's like, okay, like I'll make this deal so I can like financially better myself right like i feel like the only time i've ever really seen in like a mainstream rom-com like the reverse is like the proposal oh yeah which is like the only time i can think of it yeah i really like the fact that she uh was extremely good at her job and was extremely passionate and uh that was a good thing like it wasn't just like oh you need to like relax lady. <laughs> yeah exactly uh whereas like michael has been like oh you're passionate at your job and you're you know you work weekends at 6 p.m that's so you yeah good for you <laughs> exactly like i i really like that part of the relationship um so like caitlin like while you were reading the book you find that you found out that you may be autistic and you got diagnosed yeah how was that it was kind of like a weird um kind of synchronicity i guess where i um for the first time in a long time like went back to therapy and i also uh changed um psychiatrists and i'd always had like throughout my life these sort of difficult to um explain things like other doctors had kind of like assigned to like anxiety or whatever where like I, you know, going into crowded spaces, I would just, like, have this reaction that I couldn't really explain. I'd had, like, a panic attack before, so I knew that it was, like, different. But, like, sounds would really impact me. Um, Tactile sensations on my skin would really impact me. Uh, Visual stimuli. Like, I would have these very, like, sort of intense negative reactions. And doctors would be like, yeah, well, you're just having an anxiety attack. I'm like, I don't think I'm having an anxiety attack. It feels different. Um, And then on the social side, I had a lot of issues where – kind of all these classic things where, like, I would get very fixated on topics, but I would do really badly in school because I would, like, not be able to pay attention or sort of, like, operate within a classroom setting in a way that was, like, beneficial. And so I was, like, clearly very, like, smart and excelling, like, in tests. And, like, I was academically very curious, but I was also doing very poorly in school. Um, And then I also, I just, like, I couldn't make friends. I always felt, like, from a young age, I remember explaining to my mom, and I would say this over and over, that I felt like an alien who had been sent to Earth and had to, like, learn how to be a person. Or, like, when I was a kid, like, when I learned about robots, I was like, oh, I'm a robot. No one else is a robot, but I'm a robot. Um, And, like, as I got older, I was just kind of like, yeah, I guess this is how I am. Like, sometimes it would really impact me, but I would try to just, like, kind of be like, well, what am I going to do? So when I switched doctors, there all of a sudden became this sort of thing where, like, separately they were like, yeah, dude, everything you're explaining, like, that's autism spectrum disorder. Like, that's that's what it is. And so I was, like, reading this book at the same time, and that really allowed me to sort of, like, take this diagnosis that I was getting that felt sort of, like, very different and vague um, for me, and I couldn't really see how it, like, applied to my life so much. And then reading this and having the sort of, like, kind of interior monologue of a woman who has it, um, who was represented very differently because I think, like, in general in pop culture – 
um, when we represent people on the autism spectrum, it's like very, very like sort of more severe, not always like Rain Man severe, but like there's a show called like The Bridge, for example. And like when you watch that, like she's obviously like very clearly autistic, but to an extent where like she's reasonably not going to um, be able to move through the world in a way that like I have been able to. Um, which is why, like, I think it's helpful that we've started describing as a spectrum versus just, like, you're autistic. Um, yeah, that's the thing in this book. Um, like, Stella is diagnosed with Asperger's, and that's not a diagnosis anymore yes, that they give to children. It's an outdated term. It's an outdated term. It definitely gives, like, a very bad stereotype. Yeah. Um, I will say that uh, in a lot of pop culture, like, it's usually, like, autistic men. Exactly. And autistic men tend to have very different uh, symptoms than autistic women. And experiences, yeah. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. and I Helen mean, Huang actually, like, lists a couple of reference books at in her author's note. Right. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking of, like, depictions of, like, men with autism that are in positions like Stella, and I'm thinking of, like, Silicon Valley, where they're all, like, tech execs with seeing their focus, or, like, in good trouble. Yeah. I mean, she is technically in tech, and it yeah. is Silicon yeah. Valley. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I think that, like, um, the only other portrayal of autism that I actually related to at all was um, The Accountant, which was a Ben Affleck movie that came out, mm. like, a few years ago, and that came out before I was diagnosed. And I remember in watching it, I was, like, explaining to people, I was like, I I get like this is how I feel like I get this person um and so that like there are like a lot of clues throughout my life that like this was <laughs> going to come um but having this sort of interior portrayal I think like kind of everything from um how she interacts with other people and the misunderstandings that she has and they're not coming from a place of her being like stupid but just like not knowing how to like navigate things or getting fixated on things that aren't maybe the best thing to get fixated on the the uh, scene when she goes to michael's family um for that dinner for the yeah. first time that was and like awful the, and the plastic and stuff i was like man i have absolutely like maybe not the specific thing i have done this i have like had the thing where like i didn't know how to let it go i didn't know that like i was being like super not fun to be around um but it was also like the little things too like the sensory stuff i think that because it had been ex like assigned to me as being an anxiety disorder for most of my life um seeing it represented in the book like whether it's um in the club when she like can't handle that sort of stimuli or even just like the feeling of her clothes on her skin yeah like she only likes french seams she like only like certain fabrics and i know for exactly. sure that is a thing with yes. you that is like such a huge and it was funny because like um my mom has recently been trying to get more into like learning about autism spectrum disorder and kind of like um get clarity on it because my father is also like on the spectrum and it was me being diagnosed that helped him sort of start exploring this part of himself that he had no context for until like later in life which has been like its own thing. Yeah. Um, so it's made it easier for me to kind of go like reading about the French seams. I was like, I don't have to wear denim. I can just, I can just not <laughs> do that. And man, I like wearing clothes a lot more now that I just like kind of stopped wearing the things that like made me feel horrible. Yeah. And um, correct me if I'm wrong, but the author herself was undiagnosed for a long time, right? Yeah. Um, actually, I like, I read her author's note and I think it really brings it home. Uh, she right. wrote, what started as mere research for a book became a journey of self-realization. I learned that I am not alone. There are other people just like me and very possibly my daughter too. 
As I pursued and eventually attained a diagnosis at age 34, Stella, my autistic heroine, was born on the page. It has never been so easy for me to write a character. I knew her intimately. She came from my heart. I didn't have to filter my thoughts to make her socially acceptable, something I'd been unconsciously doing for ages. And this freedom allowed me to find my voice. Um, Yeah, I think it's really interesting that she... Uh, Helen started writing this book um, because her daughter, who was in preschool at the time, her teachers were saying like, oh, she might be on the spectrum. And, you know, she did some research and it turns out she was like, oh, there's a lot of things in here that is what I'm going through. And, you know, that's how um, that's how the the character Stella came came into play. Um, I actually really liked a lot of Stella's inner monologues because a lot of the time, um, like when we watch like pop culture stuff where you have an autistic character, it's like, oh, aren't they weird? And wow, like, isn't this really hurtful? Whereas like in the book, you're just like, okay, no, this is her thought process. She doesn't right. like being touched. Uh, she has hard time with eye contact. And yeah. it's not, and, and with like the Michael family scene, which was like, woof, <laughs> yeah. woof. Um, it's like you understand like the family's perspective of like, right. oh, why is she being so like rude and rude and just like being like a little bit too much but in her mind it's like oh my god there's like so much sensory stuff happening yeah and don't they know that they're being poisoned so exactly. like in a way like you get into her head and everything just kind of clicks yeah, yeah. and going off that as well i mean a lot of times like you mentioned when you see autistic people portrayed in media it is like oh they're they're just rude that's just how they are they yeah. don't they don't care they don't feel the same way you do and it's what really struck me about having Stella's inner monologue is like the intense shame she feels for not yes. being able to like communicate or get her feelings across or just like right. see what other people are feeling. And it's something that she's very self-aware about, very self-conscious about. And it's like the crux of her development is kind of like being okay with that. Yeah. Right? Well, and I think for me, that's that's been an interesting thing to sort of like um, be okay with it myself and also sort of communicate to others because a thing that like um, – has come up a lot for me is uh, so my, my dad works in sort of like international business and he would often like take me around like the people he was working with. Um, And it was partly because like, since my dad's also on the spectrum, he like got very good at talking to people, but sometimes he was like, Oh, I need like a wingman as well. And it just turns out that like his wingman was also on the spectrum, (laughs) which is like, whoops. Um, But it kind of ended up being this interesting thing where like I, in order to get through those, I really just like, super observed um how other people interacted and how they did things and so uh for me a lot of people have been like oh well you know like it's it's super surprising to learn that you're autistic because you don't seem like it and i was like yes i don't seem like it but you do not see the internal calculus that i am doing in like literally every social situation except for when like i know someone super super well um because for me it's like i observed how people do eye contact and so even though eye contact is super uncomfortable for me in general i will like time like where i am looking and which, is, just, which is the thing she does in the book she's like oh like you have yeah. to keep eye contact for three seconds yep, otherwise and then look somewhere else yeah, and then, if, yeah. It, if you do it for longer you look like a creep yep. if you don't do it at all you look like a creep yeah, yeah exactly pretty much um you know and so i think that that was super super well represented in the book and for me it was actually something that made me um feel less lonely in my own diagnosis because i was like oh my god like here like you know because a lot of times like when you see autism it's in movies so you're not getting that internal monologue of what someone's going through was with her i was like 
man, like, I get this because, like, every single thing she says to a lot of people, she's having to do the, like, internal math of, like, ah, oh, do I do this? Do I do that? Like, how do I how do I deal with this? The sort of shame that you constantly feel or even just, like, confusion and self-doubt, not knowing how you're really coming off, not knowing, like, if other people are, like, sort of upset with you. My own family often would be like, oh, Caitlin's really harsh or she, she's really, like, too honest or too brusque or she, like, gets really intense about being touched um, and so this diagnosis, I think, was also really helpful for my relationship with a lot of people close to me where I could be like, hey, so here's the reason I am where I am. And also being able to advocate for myself and what I needed and being like, hey, actually, just ask before you touch me. Sometimes I'm good with touch. Sometimes I'm like literally stand 10 feet away. I can't deal with this. Um, and I think learning how to set boundaries um, and also learn that like it's OK for me to have those boundaries. I think that's something that's really well represented where she's like. She's also challenging herself and expanding, like, how she feels about things while also learning that, like, her feelings are valid. Yeah. And I think, you know, that reminds me of just, you know, she starts off believing that she's just bad at sex, bad yeah. at love. But, you know, you see through her inner monologues because she's always concerned about other people and what they're thinking and what yeah. they need from her. Exactly. And not really thinking about herself. And yeah. that's what, you know, Michael brings is kind of this intense focus on what she needs. Yeah, exactly. I, I think that was, like, really refreshing about this book. I know that there's um, some discourse on Goodreads <laughs> about, like, about like what uh, classifies as uh, coerced consent and, like, um, how Michael is handling uh, Stella's uncomfortable uh, boundaries. But I really like the fact that she was the one with, like, all of the leverage. Like, she has the money, so, yeah. like, she's not doing this for money. Like, imagine if this book was, like, Stella was the one who oh was God. the escort. Like, it right. would be a very, very different book. Although, yeah. very similar in terms of relationships, because there are a lot of sex workers out there who, you know, their clients are like, oh, I think she's really into me. And then that kind of, like, ruins the relationship. Right. Mm -hmm. So you kind of have that tension here. But it's very different because the woman is in power. She has the financial means. And also, like, she calls the shot. She's just like, this, I'm uncomfortable with kissing. And right. even though, like, she gets more familiar with kissing, she's like, okay, but you have to, like, like, this is what I really want to do. I really want to kiss you, but I want you to know that it's it's going to take a while for me to, to get used to this. And yeah. I really like the fact that um, when she's with Michael... Like, I never felt like she was in danger. Yeah. Like, if she said, like, if she was very, very firm on, like, no, we're not doing this at all, that he would just back off. Yeah. But at the same time, he's challenging her, saying, like, okay, well, like, this is a safe space. Like, you can trust me. And I think that is something that not just, like, autistic people kind of deal with, but also just, like, women in general. Yeah, exactly. Because we're so used to um, catering to other people. Uh, which is why it's, like, very hard to diagnose uh, um, girls at a young yeah. age uh, as opposed to boys. And um, just, like, um, like w women in general, like, they're told, like, you're not good enough. You're, right. like, you have to be, like, you have to have the perfect body. You have to act a certain way. Right. You have to, fo like, follow all of these social cues. And it gets very, very difficult. Um, and you have a lot of insecurities about whether you're good at sex or right. good with relationships. So it wasn't just an aut like an autistic thing. This was something that I could relate to as well. Yeah. Uh, and, and when I was in relationships and I was like, hey, like, this is really uncomfortable. And you have to, like, have a lot of patience with me. So I was very, uh, very, very glad to see that Stella uh, was able to call the shots in yeah. a lot of the... Um, 
the 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 checklist stuff. I thought that was really cute, by the way. <laughs> yeah. The whole like checklist. Yeah, exactly. Like, okay, we are going to learn how to do a hand job. Yeah, exactly. We're gonna <laughs> yeah, to, we're going to learn how to do foreplay, and I'm like, you know, they really should come up with um, a checklist. A checklist, <laughs> right. you know, in general. Well, and I felt like for me, like I understand, obviously, like. You know, the obvious caveat is like consent is a case by case thing. Every relationship is different, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I, I perceived, um, I perceived it very differently when I was reading it um, as a person on the spectrum. And like, I don't know if the um, questions of whether or not it was coerced or not are coming from people who are neurotypical or not. Um, but for me, that resonated really strongly because I think that like communicating, um, kind of in any situation, but especially like sexually what you are comfortable with doesn't necessarily, especially given like she is paying him to teach her how to be good at sex. Um, I think communicating what you are uncomfortable with isn't necessarily a like yes or no on that action. I think you can say, hey, so this is the thing that scares me. This is a thing that I'm uncomfortable with. I need you to be patient with me or I need you to be accommodating or I need you to communicate a lot. Um, I think especially for people on the spectrum, that is a very important skill to learn. And that comes with like a trusting relationship with someone that you know, will basically go, yeah, it's okay. Like, I I will be patient with you. And I think that, um, you know, for me, that were that was like a, a representation I felt strongly about, like, for me, that was something I experienced sexually of like, kind of not knowing what was okay versus not okay, both like kind of like expectations in the moment, but also having sensory processing disorders and like, not knowing how I was going to feel having um, partners be very accommodating and very patient and taking things slowly and checking in frequently, um, which I felt like he he does really well um, in the book. I like m- how he followed like her directions. Exactly, by the way. like yeah. her yeah. being like, "Don't wear cologne." Exactly. Like, don't yeah. don't eat lamb. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So I'm just like, oh, those are like very specific. Uh, yeah. Things, but like he was like, okay, sure, I'm game. Right. Like, he wasn't yeah. like weird yeah. about it. And. I like how so like it started off as a checklist for how to be good at sex and then it became it evolved into a checklist of how to be a good girlfriend. Right. Which led the book into um what Rira is probably her favorite genre of fake, fake relationships. relationships. <laughs> yes. Yes. May that trope live on. Uh, which leads to like the family scenes and Right. Yeah. Actually like uh with uh, Michael, we we've mentioned that like there aren't a lot of uh, books with like Asian male romantic leads. I mean now they're now they're like coming into the mainstream. Now it's a thing. Stu- now yeah. it's a thing. It wasn't really quite a thing right. when this book came out in what like 2018, 2017. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean 2019. Now you have Randall Park as the Asian like. You know, always be my maybe. Yeah, yeah. so, you exactly. know, we've yeah. evolved to, like, the non-Daniel Hennies as well. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I like, speaking of that, um, I did have a little bit of an issue with the male characters in this book. They seemed all kind of, like, macho. alpha, macho. <laughs> and uh, I kind of wish there was a little bit more diversity with that. Um, I know that past complaints from um, from audiences have been, like, well, not all Asian male are like super buff and uh, like super like testosterone or whatnot. And, and I like totally agree, but this is also a romance novel. So I can totally understand <laughs> yeah. like why you want your, like your male lead to kind of look like Daniel Henney. Exactly. I mean, kind of, kind of, <laughs> kind of fit like the conventional, like Attractive. boyfriend. Yeah. Boyfriend yeah. look. I mean, if we look at this again, as like a, like a gender flip traditional rom-com, right? Like the girls are always, you know, the main lead, their quirky best friend, and then like 
the bad guy. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. So that's kind yeah. of how we, we have uh, Michael as the lead. We have Kwong as his cousin slash like kind of yeah. best friend. And then yeah. we have, um, what's his face? Philip. Philip. Yeah. Philip James. When you meet someone with like two like first names as part of their name, um, you have to like be careful. Excuse me. <laughs> yeah. Caitlin Kelly. I have two first names because the entire nation of Ireland only has first names. <laughs> they dropped the O when they emigrated and it was all over for me. Um, yeah. And I think the only like kind of more sensitive um male character you have in the book is Kai. He's the other like autistic character that and he's the protagonist um of the, the bride, bride test, test, which I had like complicated oh. feelings on. Um but it is kind of interesting that like your only sort of more sensitive male character is like neuroatypical, um, which is like kind of a sort of like complicated also portrayal of like maleness and um like autism spectrum disorder. Um, which is like kind of like a bigger other conversation, but that was a thing that actually kind of like did bug me about this book. I was like, man, all of these dudes are kind of yeah, like a like little especially yeah. when like Quan and like uh and like Michael are at Michael's apartment and they're like drinking a six pack and they're like, dude, women, like <laughs> yeah, exactly, man, you gotta fuck that shit. I'm like, really, like, uh, like <laughs> yeah, that that those were parts where I was just like, eh. and then especially with like the sex scenes, I'm like, he's talking about blue balls, and I'm like, this is. This can't be a thing. And actually, right. well, when I was reading this last night, because I read I read it the second time last mm-hmm. night, um, I'm actually dating an autistic man. Right. So, um, so I was just like asking him, like, oh, is this how you feel during a relationship? Like, one of the questions that I've asked him was, um, Stella, in this book, she says, I wish I don't like it when people treat me differently. Because, like, she's like, I don't want people to pity me. I don't want people to treat me as if I'm... Uh, the label as if my autism uh, is like my entire identity, which is fair, which is like a valid yeah. uh, perspective. And I asked Dan, I was like, do you do you feel like uh, you don't want people to treat you differently? And he said, no, I wish pe- more people would treat me yes, differently. Because, me too. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, he's actually very similar to you, Caitlin, where uh, he is very outgoing and um he was diagnosed with Asperger's when that was still a diagnosis. And he said that, like, a lot of the times people would be like, oh, you don't seem autistic. And then just kind of leave it at yeah. that without, like, really putting consideration into um, into his, like, sensory stuff. Yeah. And, and, like, with Stella, it's, like, completely opposite. Like, I feel like... Um, which which is like a character growth in this book. Like she seems to think that her autism is a flaw. Yeah. Something that she has to fix in order to be loved. And Michael kind of has a similar thing where he has his own, own insecurities. Um, he believes that like because of his dad's uh, criminal past and also his financial situation, he just thinks that he's not good enough for Stella or anyone yeah. uh, in that like economic <laughs> like economic and educational level. Right. And I thought that was like really interesting because uh, everybody has insecurities, whether you're like autistic, neurotypical, or you're a man, yeah. woman, uh, uh, non gender bi- binary. And uh, I think that that was like a really good message in a romance novel that I don't really see that yeah. often in in other romance novels. It's usually one person. Yeah, it's usually I think, one person. That has to, and like obviously everyone's like kind of you know 
growing together. Like if you look at Pretty Woman, for example, it's like he's also changing um, and transforming like his perspective on people. But it's fundamentally her who is being like, yeah, actually, like it doesn't matter that I've been a prostitute. Like I'm (laughs) worthy of not just being like kept in this ivory tower. Um, I do think that like on your point about um, Dan, Dan was actually really helpful for me sort of throughout uh, the time that I've known him, like understanding my diagnosis um, and sort of like coming to um, terms with it. And I do, I do agree with him that like, I wish more people would treat me differently. And in that, I mean that like, I would like more consideration from others of like how I move through the world and how it's different from them. I have had friends in the past who've been like, yeah, but like, I want to go to this thing. Like, why are you kind of being a wet blanket and not wanting to go? And like, now I can say like, well, actually I'm on the autism spectrum, so (laughs) I'm not going to go to this thing and that's fine. And I am also, um, my parents should have like, literally never bred and have kids because like I have two other disabilities. Um, and so like for me, I, I also kind of related to this book and like those capacities as well is like, there is a fine line between like, you don't want to be treated like a, a stereotype or just sort of like cast in this like, you know, disability role while also needing people and wanting people to like recognize your struggle or what you go through or like accommodating you. Um, and that sort of like, difficult intersection of those two things and when people do say oh well you don't seem autistic it's equally as like disappointing to me is when they look at me because my disabilities aren't unless unless i'm using a cane aren't obvious and they go well you don't seem disabled it's like yeah both of those are really bad things to say actually and you shouldn't say them <laughs> i mean even michael like once he kind of discovers and like peace puts it together doesn't see her differently but starts treating her with more care which yeah. is um what she needed right yeah, but exactly. it's also like you know she's just like oh you're pitying me mm-hmm. and like you were just going through this relationship because like I don't know like I am the poor autistic girl and I was just like <laughs> and and like that part I was just like mm, like I don't know like <laughs> that didn't resonate with me as much yeah I mean it's it's different like yeah. everybody on the spectrum is different um and you know she's kind of uh, in a way, like she shows like very uh, stereotypical uh, symptoms of uh, of like autism that you do see on television, even though she is a woman, and that does make it like refreshing. It's yeah. like, oh, she's really good at math. Yeah, uh, she's rich because all autistic people have to be super successful because of their genius brain, right? Which is like you know, which is super know. opposite of reality. Right? Yeah. Um, so this book also has. A dual narrative structure, right? Because you, not only do you see all the horny thoughts in Stella's head, you also <laughs> see all the horny thoughts in Michael's head. Yeah. And I mean, I guess we can kind yeah. of switch gears to Michael's to- side of the story, which he, like we were said, he has his own like he has his own heavy issues. baggage. Yeah. Right? You know what? He has his own daddy issues. <laughs> Man, does he? Yeah. Um, a thing that I did really appreciate about the Michael chapters um, is that, like. Uh, and I, um, Rira had reminded me that I wrote this in my Goodreads review, like way back when, um, which is that typically in narratives like disabled people, um, and even in just like life, um, disabled people don't often get to be sexy. And whether that's, you know, being on the autism spectrum or being physically disabled or whatever, that does fundamentally change your relationship with sex. Um, and it's very easy to have partners who either, like, don't respect that, which we obviously see from, like, Stella's um, recounting of, like, her previous sexual experiences. But also through Michael, we get sort of a positive sort of different thing, which is, like, it doesn't matter to him that she's autistic and that sex with her is maybe different than, like, neurotypical women. He still finds her super sexy, um, which was, like, 
just really happy for me to read because like the amount of narratives that you get to see were disabled people and in particular like disabled women. Um, and whether or not you consider like autism as a disability is like kind of up to each individual person, but at least someone who is not like, you know, neurotypical or falling in the sort of like ability spectrum, um, I think was like pretty groundbreaking along with all of the like representation in the book um and also, so also like uh, michael is an asian male lead i don't exactly. know how many times i'm going to mention this in <laughs> exactly. the podcast but it is asian it is re- revolutionary because it, yeah. if you look at like film history uh and also like in literature like asian men i mean they're they're seen as kind of like oh they're not attractive right. and they're emasculated quote unquote right. and and it's just like, okay, well, we see someone who is defying those stereotypes. Now I would consider Michael to be a stereotype because <laughs> right. like, it's like, oh, buff Asian man who looks like Daniel Henney. But, yeah, exactly. You know, like, but also loves clothes. But yeah, also yeah. loves clothes. That was really, really nice <laughs> yeah. that he uh, he was in a trade that is typically, you know, yeah, exactly. very feminine. And and his mom is supportive of it, right? Yeah. 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 It, was, it was also nice to see, like, uh, his, uh, to see, like, Vietnamese culture in well, his family yeah. yeah i mean that was something that i really noticed was his family is a working class asian family a lot of yeah. times you, when you see asian families in media they're always like middle upper class exactly like, yeah. and like the reason she's supportive of it is because of that background where it's like you gotta you gotta work you gotta it's essentially taking the family business right, right. And, like, what i really loved about michael being like uh, vietnamese is that the family scene takes place in a Vietnamese household yeah. with like the altar with peeling mangoes at the table with like fish sauce and it's just that visual is something you don't really see in, in romantic comedies or in mainstream media that, that often. Well I feel like a lot of the um, Asian representation that we have in mainstream cinema especially that is being marketed to like white audiences typically is very much like East Asian and so you don't often get a lot of the sort of like you know a Southeast Asian sort of perspective and like the sort of differences that fall into that I know a lot of people speaking as a white person um oh surprise who, <laughs> what um who you know do have this either sort of like you know the way that sort of a lot of white people describe Africa as being this sort of like monoculture the same <laughs> thing happens with sort of like all of the different regions in Asia um and so I felt like it was actually just really cool to see something that wasn't like, here's a Chinese family, here's a Japanese family. Like, it was a different place, and I think a lot of people don't really get to experience. A lot of a lot of the um, the relationship stuff uh, with, like, uh, the mom being like, oh, when are you going to have babies? <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, it's like, oh, is she a doctor? To be fair, that was to both moms. I know, I know. Yeah, yeah like, I... The thing is, uh, I know someone in our Goodreads forum said, like, oh, I thought Stella, I imagined her to be Asian at first because, you know, black hair works in math. (laughs) uh, But I was like, oh, but like the first chapter, like they're at this really fancy, like, brunch place. And like the way that like the mom and the dad talks, I'm like, oh, this is like ritzy white people. This is the whitest thing. And um, just like. Like, I also had, like, issues with um, Stella's mom because she was like, oh, I'm going to, like, acclimate you to being used to touching. And I was like, oh, that's, like, a thing that, like... My mom did that, actually. I know. Um, that's, like, a really I mean, it's, it's, it's common... It's of a time, right? It's of it's yeah. a time where people, like, you know, these days there's a lot more, 
like studies, learnings. Yeah, There's a lot yeah. more like awareness of like the the spectrum. But back then, it was like, oh, it's, you just have to overcome it. Well, and that you was know. the thing that was interesting for me recently is um, in one of my conversations with my mom about it. She was like, yeah, it's actually really um, interesting that you ended up getting diagnosed because when you were a kid, like really young, um, your dad and I sort of thought this was the case. And when we took you to a doctor for like something unrelated, they were like, yeah, um, I think that your daughter's on the autism, like that your daughter's autistic. But this was like, you know, in the early 90s. And it was kind of like, well, like, okay. And like, so it wasn't necessarily like, I don't know if it was an official diagnosis or not, but their kind of best advice to my parents was like, yeah, you just got to get her used to the world, I guess. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which, like, like, didn't work out super well. Yeah, they call it masking in, in yeah. the community. And, um, yeah, like, that part was just, like, real. Like with her mom. That was difficult. Was, that was really difficult for, for me to read. Yeah. And, um, but, like, you see, you see, like, the contrast between, like, Stella's family and, like, Michael's family. They're both in very different economic uh, circles and also just, yeah. like, the the scene where Michael goes to the benefit charity lunch or whatever, also a super white thing, by yeah. the way. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's like the reverse, like it's the reverse family meet, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, but like it's like that moment where uh, Stella's dad was just like, "Oh, like what do you do?" And he's like, "Well, like I I'm not going to say that I work as an escort." So he just says like, "Oh, I'm not." really working how did you guys feel narratively about the sort of like social climax that happens with because you have the sort of like from my recollection you have the sort of two things that happen which is michael um getting into the physical altercation with philip when he's like kind of forcing himself on stella but then you also have this benefit where there's like the kind of culmination of like um, it's Philip's mom, right? Who was is the sort of like oh, overly was, attached yeah. like yeah. patron of Michael. And I remember like both times I read it, I I kind of like didn't really um, like how all of that played out necessarily because I understood that it was like oh it's like you know Michael's past sort of like catching up to him being publicized, which I I understood why that was happening, but I kind of felt like it somewhat distracted from like the sort of overall narrative of, like, these two different people sort of, like, coming together. Um, so I was curious how you guys, like, felt about that. I mean, in terms of, like, the narrative structure, I mean, this whole relationship has been based on, like, mutual misunderstanding of each other's intentions. And that's just it coming to a head, right? Where right. it just boils over. Um, in that scene I did, like, and I think we was building this, um, there's a scene where Stella's dad is, like, grilling Michael about his background and why why aren't you working? Aren't you ambitious? I like ambition. And it's it's a really great depiction of the privilege of not understanding what it's like to need money and sure, to need yeah. to support your family. With, with Michael, like, all of his insecurities are in this scene. He's like, I don't have money. I don't have, like, a good job or, like, a job that I can be proud of. That's worthy of yeah, Stella. Yeah, right. Because right? he has his own inferiority. Yeah. Like, like his sister Janie at some point says, like, oh you're like the first girl that's like good enough for him because he's always kind of aimed low and uh that that's the thing um that's a part of his arc because his mom is like you've been working at the store (laughs) for three years like you know i know i have i have cancer but like i'm fine like you're just being like you're letting your insecurities hold you back and she good while hunting him. Yeah. She, <laughs> I think where I struggled was, like, the inclusion of, like, Philip and his mom mm. in sort of, like, a lot of the uh, sort of misunderstanding there. And I'm not quite sure, like, 
why that was a point of like big contention for me as I was reading it. That was probably the thing that like <laughs> bugged me most. Um, and I don't really know why. Um, I mean, I just chalk it up to romance genre drama. Sure, that's fair. Right? Yeah. Like you got to have the big, like, I think they kind of took off gunned it um, right. in the beginning. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. it's like, well, you exactly. got to fire that at some point, right? Right. Yeah. I think for me, the thing um, that I was maybe comparing it to was Pretty Woman, where the sort of like big turning point that happens is when um, Jason Alexander, when he learns that she's a prostitute, mm. tries to hire her. And then when she turns him down, he sexually assaults her. Um, and that's when uh, Richard Gere, like, comes back into the room and he, like, beats up his friend and is, like, or lawyer or whoever. And is like, <laughs> yeah, actually, like, this is not okay. And that for her is a little moment of, like, man, no one's going to see me as anything other than a sex worker. Um, and that to me was kind of, like, an intimate moment that, like, was just kind of surrounding that central conflict. Um, and I think for me it was, like, the inclusion of the mom and Philip. I was like, this is so soap opera. Like, ah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, I mean – I can see your point, <laughs> uh, but also it was juicy. So. Yeah, it, it was. It was juicy. Um, Maybe this is my problem with romance. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I like how. Well, I don't know if I liked. I mean, Philip was just like kind of a slimy dude in yeah. general, and he was, you know, he's trying to I, like. I had an issue with that, but go right ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, he was trying to like. I don't know. When, when he was trying to hit on Stella, he was like saying, "Oh, we both have issues. I have issues too." I was like, "No, your issues seem more." Um, person, yeah, he was also like very <laughs> hypocritical, being like, I can't believe like he slept with my mom, and yeah. he's like hitting on an intern, and right, yeah, it's like still like really gross. I mean, every one of these stories needs to that guy. Yeah, right? but the yeah. thing is, I wish the the second male lead wasn't that guy mm. like i wish that yeah. was like a different guy in the office who was kind of like more of a side character i mean philip is a side character but i just wish that like stella and her mom being stella and her family saying like oh philip would be good for you i wish she was like more of a gentleman who yes who yeah. was like a very good guy but doesn't understand that you know she needs considerations right and i feel like that would have made I it a more powerful arc yeah, yeah i can see that I, I, like making the climax about her choosing michael over like the guy who's like on paper good for her that yeah. would that would have been yeah that would have been nice because yeah. like it, it for me like with the representation of how um socially she operates i felt like philip was just kind of like so obviously like gross <laughs> that it didn't kind of make sense that she'd be like yeah I, I guess this is like you know maybe i should do this maybe I should do that i was like I felt like he should have been, even if he, like, turned out to be super gross, um, it was, like, a little bit too, I think, apparent for me. I was like, oh, he's the gross guy. Would have, like, yeah. like so, you said, like, a little bit more gentlemanly, like, and he, then his ableism or his, like, insensitivity is revealed sort of, like, later on. He was kind of a cartoon character. Yeah, yes. he, he kind of was, <laughs> yeah. which goes back to, like, my criticism of, like, male characters. Like, I yeah. feel like they weren't as fleshed out. Yeah. Um, I mean, <laughs> I want to say... Isn't that, but in itself, kind of refreshing in a way? Yeah, no, I can get that. Yeah, I, I can, I can see that. It's yeah. like the like, oh, it's nice to have like a story where like <laughs> the woman character is just like aggressively detailed, and like the male characters are like kind of stereotypical. Yeah, it typically doesn't happen because in the climax, in that the scene where um, Michael punches Philip, it does 
end up with him coming in and like saving the day which yeah okay um, but the thing is he doesn't save the day though castella says i have a taser i know how to use it <laughs> yeah you're not going home with me like exactly. and she just kind of walks away which i thought was a really good scene yeah yeah sorry to interrupt you i just <laughs> wanted to make that known no um but i did want to ask you marvin since like you know like this is a genre that's like kind of out of your realm of comfort i would say <laughs> um like how did you see michael as like an asian male character in in this book i mean what i took away from michael's arc in general is like a depiction of like, again like a working class asian family um i think michael reminds me of a lot of like a lot of people i grew up with where he feels this almost like intense responsibility to take care of everyone around him especially because his shithead dad like ditched right. the family he's the only son as yeah. Well. yeah and so he's taking on all the burden and he ha- kind of has like this hero complex right like like only i can be responsible for my family i have to like make up for my dad's sins yeah and i mean that's why he takes up like escorting to pay for his mom's uh, medical bills that's why he you know put his life on hold yeah right and so um I mean, it's an extreme version of this story, but I know this story. A, a lot of people that I know are this story where, like, they weren't able to go to college because they had to support their families. They right. weren't and able they had to, to drop out. Yeah. Or, yeah. yeah, yeah, stuff like that. Um, yeah, I mean, we see it in, like, we see that kind of story with, like, white people as well. Yeah. But I feel like with, uh, by making this character Asian, like, it definitely brings, like, a specificity to <laughs> it. And also, like, a lot of East Asians, I mean, um, I mean, Vietnamese is Southeast Asian, but a lot of people think that Asian families are really rich. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I think there's something to be said, too, about the fact that, like, um, you know, even, like, zooming in more from just, like, East Asian versus Southeast Asian, the representation that we kind of get here in the States, I think also, like, Vietnam and uh, Vietnamese families occupy a very specific part of sort of the Asian American experience, given, like, Hey, guess what we did in Vietnam? Not the greatest. Um, And so I grew up in Seattle, which was a very popular area for a lot of uh, Vietnamese refugees to settle just because it was generally like a much more sort of accessible part of the country. Um, And because there was like a bit of a lower population and it was like a cheaper cost of living, you could like really easily start up businesses. And so I went to school with a lot of kids who were um, Vietnamese whose parents had fled um, the war and were refugees and like, you know, had gone to Guam and then immigrated from there. Um, And I think it occupies for sort of white audiences a place that, like, we typically, when we think of, like, Vietnamese people, there's a lot of just, like, oh, war. And that's kind of like, you know, like, the sympathizer, I would say, is, like, a much more, uh, much more of the story that, like, white Americans kind of get about Vietnam. And so I really appreciated just getting to see a working class family that is probably, for a lot of us, is a lot more sort of accessible as what a working class Asian family would be versus like a lot of the Chinese kids I went to school with were a lot wealthier. And there was this sort of social strata even within there of like the complicated relationships of like colorism and classism and sort of how that came into play, um, which I liked a lot more about this than if it had been like maybe a different uh, representation. Yeah. I like that he was the only guy in his family too. Yeah. Yeah. yeah definitely <laughs> brings out like, uh, like fleshes out his character a little bit more. I really like the fact that like in his inner monologue, he says, all these women in the house don't know how to cook. I don't know how that <laughs> happened. <laughs> and I feel I feel like a lot of um, like Asian men know how to cook. I feel like that's just, yeah, I don't know. That's just the thing. 
How did you guys, um, in terms of like Asian male representation, was it complicated for you as readers um, that he was uh, mixed race versus not mixed race? Did that like bother you? Did that not bother you? I thought it made sense because like, you know, his dad left and he's right. being raised by his grandmother and his mother who are, you know, Vietnamese. But um, they're like... I think, I mean, the book portrays him as identifying probably more with his Asian side of the family. Absolutely. Too. And I mean, I think in general, Rira and I have a more, I guess, liberal conception of what being Asian American means. Absolutely. Um, so it didn't like, it, I, I wouldn't say it, it, it there, probably wasn't even a thought. Like, there, there, yeah. was, there was a paragraph where uh, Stella is looking through baby photos and she's like, oh, like he's with all of his Vietnamese cousins and he's the only one who kind of looks uh, different. And she says, I wonder what it, what that's like, knowing that you don't fit completely on either side. And uh, Helen Huang is actually a uh, mixed race. So I know that that came from a right. place that is personal um, but I really like the fact that that wasn't the entire book. Yeah. yeah, like it was just like, okay, well, this is part of who he is. Um, sure, he has issues with like his dad and whatnot, right. and that's you know relatable. That's not like strictly to Asian culture being being mixed race. I think what's great about it is it is a depiction of like people who are typically marginalized in right. media, um, and I mean Michael's struggles are struggles for not only people who have to live with like having like grown up in tough times and having a, a shitty dad but it also touches on the struggles of like being mixed race and like it's no one's fault for being born yeah exactly right? but then they had to deal with you know how the world sees them and i think yeah. that's very apparent in this book too i mean one of michael's biggest struggles is how his dad really like messed him up by telling him like your only asset is your looks yeah right exactly. and that's kind of something he internalizes yeah. and that's something that like girls hear all the time yeah and it's just like oh the only way you're gonna succeed is to like be pretty and to like marry rich. but you'll also never be pretty enough in all the right ways <sighs> god um, <laughs> Yeah, and I liked that this book was really fundamentally about um, not just two people learning that it's, like, okay for them to be loved and actually that they are, like, worthy of love despite, like, whatever they have going for them that they feel insecure about, um, but also about, like, two people really sort of learning to, like, access feelings um, because that's, like, a big part of being on the spectrum that, like, a lot of people don't talk about is, like, a lot of times we get sort of cast as being, like, cold or unemotional or whatever, and it's actually not that, like, Autistic people have fewer emotions, but it's also a lot harder for us to, like, process and identify them all the time of, like, a lot of times I just feel, like, question mark of, like, I don't know what this feeling is and I have to learn what to do with it. But I also feel like that's something that, like, you see Michael having to kind of do in his own ways of sort of, like, learning how to process the sort of feelings of shame or sort of identify, like, why am I feeling certain things and, like, Stella bringing out other feelings in him that he's having to learn, like, what to sort of do with them. I really yeah. thought that that was, like, a really beautiful way of telling a romance story of, like, not just, like, oh, I'm worthy of love, but, like, oh, man, how do I, like, become a better person through the lens of being loved? Yeah. More of the story. Everyone has issues. Exactly. Everyone has issues. <laughs> uh, communication skills are key. Yes. Don't be ableist. Um, setting boundaries is good. Setting boundaries is good. Uh, yeah. The, touches up on all of those things. <laughs> yeah. Uh, overall, we're just going to wrap up. Um I know that this book has, like, a divided audience. Uh, I, <laughs> yeah. There are people who, like me who loved it, um, and then there are people who found issues with it. And I think they're both very valid perspectives. Um, but I think all of us can agree 
that this is a very this is like a milestone in yeah. not just like romance but also just like in Asian American literature um and I just really hope that in the future I see more um Asian male leads and also Asian uh women leads in terms of like romance and have it be all diverse so it so this isn't the only representation of an <laughs> autistic woman or of an asian male lead in romance well and things just being more complicated i think a lot of these stories get sort of like distilled down to just like you know race and that's like kind of the only complicating factor where it's like he's such a flushed out person with a lot of different struggles and so is she and i think that's like fundamentally more interesting yeah and i mean in general i i enjoyed reading the book I, I liked how it was kind of like a rom-com in which, you know, besides all the very detailed sex horny. scenes, all the horny, <laughs> um, I kept reading because I really wanted these two kids to work out their issues and get together. Yeah. You know? I, I, oh God, I just remembered like another thing, another issue that I had. Um, I know that we're trying to end on a positive note, but I did have an issue with the insta-love of him being like, oh man, like, I I love her. And I'm just like... I wish I wish that came a little bit later. Yeah. It was the chemicals, the hormones, the horny. Yeah. No, you have to you have to draw it out a little no, bit. Horny. They no, t- there's a difference <laughs> between horny and like love, like horny versus insta love. I, I yes. mean that that was a thing that I uh, kind of bristled at, but you know it is a trope, and I'm like whatever. Positive side. I did like that because she's autistic, he didn't go like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. Am I in love with her? He was just like, yeah, dude, I love this girl. (laughs) She's my favorite. I was like, yes. Win for autistic women. Yeah. Yes. Um, Yeah. And I really really liked how he's just like, oh, yeah, I'm going to propose to you in three months because you hate surprises. And I'm like, that's really sweet. Yes. (laughs) I liked that. It was very good. It was a great way to end it. Not sure how I feel about the epilogue. But you know what? Let's end on a positive note. You know, yeah. I mean, it, and, and, <laughs> let and, it go. I'll let it go. But at the end of the day, it is a feel-good like romance story. So yeah. you know, this is also being made into a movie. So yeah. crossing my fingers that <laughs> they that they uh, cast right. Yeah, I don't know what right means, but you know, once I see who is cast. I will get the feelings. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's <laughs> yep. kind of how I felt with uh, To All the Boys I've Loved Before, which is kind of like the YA version of this book because of the fake relationship right. stuff. So, yeah. I don't know. I'm excited. <laughs> Give me all of the adaptations <laughs> of, of, of all the books that we yeah. have read in this book club. And yeah, like there's a lot coming. Maureen Gu just got her adaptation of. Um, I believe the, in a thing called love. Yeah, which is the K drama yeah. relationship, fake relationship. Yes. Right? Well, no, that's not a fake relationship. <laughs> She's faking. Uh, but it's a checklist. It's a checklist. It's a checklist yes. story, yes. <laughs> more, more checklists <laughs> in books. Well, on that note, that'll also do it for our discussion of our February 2020 book club pick, The Kiss Quotient by Helen Hong. Um, Caitlin, thank you so much for joining thank us. Thank you for having me. And Rira, what are we reading for the month of March? Uh, we are reading The Map of Salt and Stars by Zane Jacadar. I hope I said that correctly, but um, yes, it, it is a book that um, that's kind of a dual narrative with two timelines, uh, one set in ancient Syria and one in uh, present day time. So it'll be interesting. It's a historical, magical realism book. That is what has been pitched to me. So yay. Great. We'll see you at the end of next month. Hopefully you finished a book. <laughs> Good luck. Um, and that also do it for this episode of Books and Boba. Thank you so much for listening. Um, we'll see you next time. All right, bye. Bye, everyone. <laughs>
Thanks for listening to Books and Boba. This episode was hosted by Marvin Yue and Riva Yu and produced and edited by Marvin Yue. This podcast was recorded at the Potluck Podcast Studios located within the Visual Communications offices in downtown Los Angeles. You can learn more about Visual Communications and their programs such as the Los Angeles Asian Pacific Film Festival by going to their website at vcmedia.org. Thanks also to the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian-American-hosted podcasts that Books and Boba is a proud member of. You can learn more about our fellow Potluck Podcasts by checking out the website podcastpotluck.com. Hey, I'm Phil Yu, and you may know me from a blog called Angry Asian Man. And I'm Jeff Yang, author, journalist, and celebrity dad. We host a podcast called They Call Us Bruce, an unfiltered conversation about what's happening in Asian America. Each week or so, we host a discussion about some of the most vital and interesting topics in our pop culture and our community, bringing in guests who are shaping and informing this thing called Asian America from Hollywood to D.C. and beyond. Uh, we've got media, entertainment, food, family, politics, representation, the good, the bad, the WTF of it all. So check us out wherever you get your podcasts or at theycallsbruce.com. Peace. Peace.